If you would take your Bibles and turn in them to a new chapter in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 9. Just want you to know we're making progress, and uh, hopefully we'll make a lot of progress this morning. Uh, Luke chapter 9, I'm going to read down to verse 17, verse 17, follow along as I read. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening. And he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead. By some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had arisen. Had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who needed healing. Now the day began to wear away. And the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we're to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about five thousand men. And he said to the disciples, to his disciples, Make them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and made them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. This is the word of the living God. Well, some years ago, I developed a fascination with YouTube videos about people who seek to live a minimalist lifestyle. Uh, there are quite a few minimalist videos and challenges. Uh, one challenge is to have a packing party where you invite all your friends over and they help pack all of your belongings into boxes. And then you put all those boxes away. And then in the next 30 days, you only take out what you need and you leave everything else in the boxes. And then after those 30 days, you realize that you don't use most of the stuff that you have. <laughs> and, uh, and then I guess you're supposed to make a decision after that. Uh, so that was fascinating to me. I've not done a packing party. I'm not going to invite you over to do a packing party. Don't worry. Um, uh, by the end, you, you start to see, you know, wow, like we have a lot of stuff that we don't really use a lot. And you can live on a lot less. Uh, I found it fascinating how much that we actually don't use. There, there's a lot of 
statistics and facts about, you know, how much Americans own and use and things like that. I'll spare you those. This led me down, though, a different rabbit trail, and uh, it was about uh, more, more YouTube videos, but people who seek to pack for a trip as minimally as possible. And so they try and just get it down really tight. And you can watch these YouTube videos. But uh, I had seen them before. But when I was at Shepherd's Conference back in March, I stayed with a pastor friend of mine. And I thought I had packed pretty, pretty well. But this friend of mine had me totally beat. He had one little messenger bag that he was wearing slung over his shoulder. And for the five days that we were there, he had this, only this one bag. And he lived out of it. And it was fine. He looked good and everything. And I was like, what? How did you do that? And so I'm like asking him, I'm like, show me your bag. And he's showing me what he's got in there. I'm like, what about this? And he's like, well, you don't, you don't need that. You know, he's like, <laughs> and so uh, he made it work. And I was just like blown away by this. So now, and actually maybe he gets annoyed at me for this, but when we go on a trip, I try and pack my own bag and, and a small bag at that and, and try and pack only one bag and everything that I need in that. Now, what ends up happening is there are times when, you know, I have to depend on her for something I forgot that she packed instead and, or the, the grocery store or something. We have to go there and pick up something that I, that I forgot. And it, it requires some trust. It requires some trust and, uh, to pack light. Well, that is exactly what the disciples have to do here is to pack light. Uh, they have to be... Uh, minimalists in their packing. In fact, really, they don't have to pack any bag uh, as they go out. And they have all of us beat uh, to go. I mean, have you ever gone to the airport, had a ticket alone, and just walked through security and got on the plane without any bag whatsoever? You didn't bring anything. You just brought your ticket, you know, not even a book. And you just get on there and you just read the magazine that they have on the back, you know. Uh, I've never done that, but that seems like really liberating to me. Like, wow, like nothing. You just got your ticket, boom, and it's stored away. All right, it's just me. Uh, that's what the disciples are doing here as they go out on this first missionary journey. And you think, why? Why is this the strategy? Well, we're going to find out in our passage. But the point of this section from verse 1 really to verse 50, which is the next major section in Luke, is the conclusion of the Galilean ministry. Jesus has been ministering in Galilee, uh, and the feeding the 5,000 is like the capstone miracle for the, the Galilean region. And we're going to see the conclusion of this, but what we see in Luke 9 in, these, in this section is discipleship. It really ramps up on this theology of discipleship. And Jesus is training these men, these 12, to, for what they will do in the future. After 9 verse 50, they're going to start heading to Jerusalem and, uh, and heading to that final uh, showdown in Jerusalem, which will lead to the Lord's crucifixion and resurrection. And so we're, we're in a section about discipleship. Jesus is training and preparing them. And in verses 1 to 17 that we just read, Jesus is specifically teaching the disciples how he will provide for them in their ministry. Everything in discipleship is to point back to Jesus. And discipleship 101, we might say, is dependence upon Christ. Trusting Christ to provide for you. I mean, that's the essence of what salvation is, is to, to trust that the Lord will provide all that you need for salvation. And you just trust him. You just rely upon him. And so as you go forward in ministry, you continue to trust the Lord. And so Jesus is doing some intentional things here for the disciples to teach them this practically that they would learn to trust in the Lord. And I think there's some interesting connections here that hold this section together. If you notice in verse 1, he references the 12. He calls the 12 to himself. And then at the end of 17, it says that there was 12 baskets left over. 
And so it's almost like a bracketing way to say, hey, this is all together. Don't separate this. And so I'm trying not to separate it this morning. What you'll also notice, if we look at next week's message, kind of getting into that as a teaser uh, trailer, Peter is going to give the confession about who Jesus is. Who do people say that I am? And the, Peter gives the same three suggestions that people have that those around Herod are giving. He reiterates those same three, but then he gives the right answer. And so there's even a connection there as well that you could draw into this text. What you'll also notice that ties these together, especially the feeding of the 5,000 and the early mission trip that they go on, is that Jesus sends them out in the early mission trip, calling them to depend upon him, to empower them for the ministry they're going to do. And then at the end, you have the feeding of the 5,000, which in essence is like the final exam, where there's a situation that they have no ability to provide for in and of themselves, but that's exactly what they've been doing all this time. And so now, Jesus is in a sense tr training them and testing them to see if they've learned the lesson. So that's kind of a spoiler alert I gave you, I know, already. But I want you to pay attention. I want you to, I want you to see why it's important that we don't break off. And it's, I, I, it's okay if you, you know, spent time just looking at the feeding of the 5,000. But each gospel writer has their own emphasis in telling the story. This is the only, besides the crucifixion and resurrection, this is the only thing that all four gospel writers tell us about. And each of them has a slightly different angle to tell us about the feeding of the 5,000. And so we want to make sure we grasp what Luke wants to tell us about this uh, story in his gospel. So as we look at this passage, it is, is a great passage for us to learn about ministry, to learn about ministry. And so from this passage, you will see five features of biblical ministry, five features of biblical ministry that we want to learn from and so that we can uh, live out as we seek to minister for the Lord Jesus as his disciples in our time. So let's first consider the sovereign mandate for biblical ministry. The sovereign mandate for biblical ministry in verse 1. Look there at verse 1. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. Now stop there. Here, Jesus is not calling the disciples initially. That's already happened. He's not even calling them to himself in that uh, spe specific way of calling them to be his disciples and apostles, really. We've seen that already. This is a call to send them out, really, on their first, like, short-term mission trip, STM. And they're going to go out. So Jesus is calling them together for that purpose. And so this is training. And they're given two things, authority and power. Authority is the right to do something, right? And power is the ability to do that thing. And so he gives them both. And what do you remember from chapter 8? In the last part of chapter 8, in fact, there were four miracles that Jesus does, and they all attest to his authority, right? They show his authority over disaster, over demons, over disease, and over death. And now here he is in the next section delegating authority to his disciples so that they might go out and declare the message and have that same authority to bring that message. And so we might say, as one did, what Jesus has done, the disciples will do. And so they serve as his ambassadors, his representatives. Now, of course, as we look at this passage, there's a lot of unique things in this passage that are not necessarily normative for today. 
uh, and that'll bear itself out through the text. But the first one that jumps out to us is that these 12 are given power and authority over demons and to cure diseases and to heal, as we'll see. And that's not something that we, as individual believers, are given the gift to do today. That was for a unique period of time in the early church. And Jesus had this special role, especially for the apostles, uh, to do this as his representatives. But what I want you to see here, the fundamental point, the timeless principle, that though they're given unique authority, nevertheless, all ministry begins with a mandate. It begins with the Lord's commissioning of his people. And of course, if we fast forward, uh, actually it's a book back, but it's historically forward, (laughs) uh, in Matthew chapter 28, after the resurrection, here's what Jesus gives as the marching orders for the church, for his people. He gives it to the 12, but it's of course to expand out to the disciples of the 12. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, We read, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so Jesus commissions the the church commissions believers to go out, to make disciples, to teach them what Jesus has taught, to, as, they, as they profess faith in Christ, to baptize them and to do this over and over and over again. And we have the authority of Christ behind us to do this and we have the empowerment of Christ as his presence goes with us. And so there's, this is the common theme we see here. We do ministry with the authority of Jesus. In our scripture passage, that we read uh, in Titus 2, the very last verse, in chapter 2, verse 13, Paul is instructing Titus in particular about how he's to preach, and he says, you know, do this with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Like, whoa, man, that's kind of intense, you know. I'm gonna preach the word, and no one's gonna disregard. Well, he's not telling Titus to just say what he wants. Insofar as Titus teaches the word of God faithfully, that comes with the full authority of God. And so in as far as we, we, we bring the word of God to someone and it's accurate, that has not our authority, but God's authority. Like sometimes you'll hear a preacher say like, you know, he'll say like, right, so you're telling me that I need to do this and obey this? And the preacher will say, I'm not telling you that. God is telling you that, right? From the Bible. And so that's a good rhetorical thing you can use if you want. <laughs> um, but not for right now. So what Jesus is doing is he's giving them the authority they need to go about this task that he's given them to do. And so all believers are to get into this mission that Jesus has given to the church of discipleship. Of, and we all play different roles in that. The church is made up of a, is a body and it has different parts. And so you find you know, where your niche of service will be. But all Christians are supposed to be serving in the church in some way. So are you serving? Are you serving? And some people, you know, it's, when you say things like this, some people will, will come up to you and go, oh man, I just, I'm, I'm just so convicted, I'm not serving. And, and you start to talk to them and you're, they're like serving like 15 different ways and they're just like, they don't consider that service, you know? And you're like, uh, yeah, you're serving more than I am. <laughs> and others who, who are like, oh yeah, I'm good, I think I'm serving. And they're doing nothing, right? It's like, so how does that happen? I don't know. But here, let me just give you some practical tips because it's one thing, you know, when the preacher says like, you need to do this, but it's also good for the preacher to give you some practical like implementation. Like, what do I do next? Okay, I want to do that. And here's a simple thing. We could say much more, but when you think about service, start this way and think, what do I want to do? 
Like, what do I want to do? What do I have a desire to do? Uh, like, man, I'd really like to just, I really like writing letters to encourage people. And man, I, I think that would be an encouraging thing to do. Oh, great. That would be great. That would encourage a lot of people. Or like, oh yeah, I, I'd love to help um, with, you know, the, with the kids or something like that. And it's like, okay, you know, great. Or, and, and then here's the other thing. So you say, what is my desire? And then you say, what am I, what are other people affirming that has been helpful and beneficial? Like, so if I said, um, hey, it's really my desire to be a preacher, to teach God's word. And we're like, well, great. All right, let's see. And so, you know, get some training stuff. And then I get up here and all y'all are just falling asleep and just like no help whatsoever. Someone has to come up to me at some point and say, brother, we love you. I think your ministry might be somewhere else, right? In a loving, gracious way. And just to say, and so that's how it works. It's, it's kind of a desire. And God has gifted us with, we might say, ordinary giftings. We all have different skills and things like that. But the issue is when you are saved, you just, you put your skills to work for the body of Christ. It's not that that skill particularly is a, is a gifting, but the giftings are um, f- for you to serve one another in the body. And that can happen in a multitude of ways. And we can be serving in lots of different ways all at once. But the point is, are we, are we serving one another? And uh, I've heard the statement, you can't steer a parked car, right? You can't steer a parked car. So you just got to get moving. And so that's why I say, just, just start serving somewhere. You can always change lanes if your car's moving, but you can't change lanes if it's not moving at all. And so if you just are in one lane, you're like, man, I just, ooh, this is, uh, I don't know if this is what, what I'm supposed to be doing. Okay, change lanes, you know, and, and try a different, try a different one. And, and I think that's just a good way to think about it. Much more to be said, but you think of all these one another commands in scripture, and those are meant to be for the church to say, oh, this is what we're to do. This is what body life is. Titus 2 is another good example of that in God's providence that we just read about just serving one another, being encouragement. We, we talked in our, um, one of our fellowships about what is discipleship? It is one person, one Christian doing another Christian spiritual good. I mean, you could drive a truck through that. I mean, that's a huge definition, but it's intentionally broad. How can I do another person's spiritual good in the body? And just think about it like that. Okay, what do I want to do? How can I do that? And, and that would be great. All of us can grow still more. Uh, and, and so let me encourage you in, 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 on one degree uh, for the service that is happening among us and many of you serving in, in many ways and some of you serving in ways that people don't even see. And that's fine. And you probably get rewarded more than some of us. You know, it's like, hey, don't, I don't want people to know. He's like, because, uh, I want my full reward, right? It's like, I, I don't need the recognition. But others, um, you know, we just need to excel still more. We need to always excel still more in this. So let this be an encouragement to us as we consider the sovereign mandate for biblical ministry. We're all in the game, right? Coach, put me in. All right, all of you, you're in. <laughs> so find your role. The sovereign mandate of ministry. Second, let's consider the saving message of biblical ministry. The saving message of biblical ministry. Look at verse 2. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Now, notice how their mission is the same as Jesus' mission. Jesus has been proclaiming and Jesus has been healing. And these signs, along with the message, serve to announce the kingdom and showcase the conditions of the kingdom. You have to remember, Jesus focus was on teaching, but he has these miracles to show that the king is present and therefore the kingdom conditions are present here. And so you need to repent and be rightly related to the king for the kingdom. And so this is a message of repentance and a call to trust in God, to get right with God. And you'll notice here, notice how verse two says to proclaim the kingdom of God. 
And then notice verse six of what they actually did. They departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now this is a helpful thing to consider when you're reading your Bible to go, what is preaching the kingdom? And in some way, you might say there's an overlap here between what preaching the gospel is and preaching the kingdom is. Now, we might be able to distinguish some things, but notice how he calls them to proclaim the kingdom. They go and proclaim the good news, proclaim the gospel. So there's, there's overlap there, right? There's overlap between those two. And so what is it that they're preaching? Well, they're saying something like this. The king is here. The king is present. And the, the, the time has come. It is time to repent so that the kingdom of God uh, might break out among us. You need to get right. Maybe they're quoting Joel 2. You know, tear your hearts and not your garments. And, and just relying upon Old Testament scripture about being right with God and calling people to trust in God and not in themselves. And so this is what they're doing. And so why are they to heal as well? Well, they are Jesus' representatives. And what the function of healing, casting out demons, and these miraculous things were in the early church was to give validation to the message. And so here's an interesting thing you can, you can look at. If you really, sometimes we have this sense that when we read the Bible that there's like Bible world and our world. <laughs> and you think like every day in Bible world, there's just miracles happening, you know, all over the place. But what you have is really... Uh, Th uh, three periods where miracles uh, of an incredible nature are happening. And they're relatively short periods when you consider the time period that these books are covering of thousands of years. You really have the time of Moses when Israel's being led out of Egypt and he's writing the first five books of the Bible. And so once again, you see incredible miracles coupled with revelation. God is giving new revelation, and we have books of the Bible that come out of this, the first five. The second era, and that's just a, you know, a number of decades that we're talking about. And then you have the time period of Elijah and Elisha, and of course, they represent the prophets, and of course, that's really the rest of the Old Testament. And so you have all this revelation coming around that time as the kings in Israel are uh, going astray. God raises up the prophets to show that God rules by his word. And so they are authenticated by that. And also you notice that throughout these periods, there's people who are standing up and saying, this is the Lord. And they're saying, I've got a message from the Lord. And there's instruction in the Bible about, hey, if someone says that they come from the Lord, but they don't meet these things. They're a false teacher. They're not true. Do not listen to them. And then, of course, you have the season of Jesus and the apostles when there's a flurry of miracles. And what else is happening at that time? The New Testament, you know, this part of your Bible. <laughs> and, and so at each of these stages, you have these incredible miracles alongside the giving of new revelation. And that would make total sense because if you're about to say, hey, this is God's message for you, this is what God says, how do you prove that? I mean, anyone can say, God told me this. And you're like, that's the ultimate trump card. And it's like, God told me that I should marry you. You know, God's, a guy says to a girl, it's like, oh, really? He didn't tell me. You know, it's like, uh, uh, it's like, what do you say to that? What do you say to that trump card of God told me? Well, in a way, now you can say, no, I don't think he did because, you know, we understand prophecy this way. <laughs> uh, but uh, you have to be able to back it up with an incredible demonstration. And so that's what was happening with the apostles here, that they're giving this message out and it's confirmed. 
It says in Acts 2.22 that Jesus was a man attested to by signs and wonders that he performed. And it says in 2 Corinthians 12.12 that the signs of an apostle were performed among you. So the apostles did these signs to authenticate them because they were speaking this message. And so that's what you have, really. And so Bible land is not, you know, Bible world is, is not necessarily what you may have thought. Here's a good example. We just studied Ezra, and we're about to study Nehemiah with the men, and you look at that season of Israel's history, and there's virtually no miracles going on. There's no Exodus-type miracles. It's just the normal life of, that we understand to be normal. It's, it's Ezra and Nehemiah, period, in Israel's history, is like much like our here, history, you know? It, it's just hearing the word of God preached, praying, seeing God work providentially, and so there's a good example, even in Scripture, of a season where uh, there's not a flurry of miracles happening. Esther is another good example of that, that period. So that, that's some of the purpose of that. And it validates their ministry so that they can bring this message. And so you think, well, okay, then how do we validate our message today? Okay, so if the, if the I, I think I know where you're going with this, Robert. Okay, I've heard you preach enough. I, I get it. You know, you state the point. Give some illustrations. Give some cross-references, and then you give us the application. You come at us, you know. And uh, yes, that's what I do. Uh, and so what, I see where you're going with this. You're saying this is the message, and so we are to proclaim the message too. That's the commonality, right? We don't do the miracles, but we proclaim the same message. Okay, I get it. But, but how do we authenticate our message? All right, I get it. We're going to preach the same gospel. We're going to preach the same message that saves people from their sins. How do we authenticate it? Here's how. This, right? Like, this is how you authenticate it. If you are accurate to what this says, and you get the authorial intent, what the author was trying to say, and you get that right, and you make the connection of how it applies, you have all authority. That's why Paul tells Titus, he doesn't say, hey, preach and then do a miracle because then they'll believe you. He says, preach and let no one disregard you. How could he possibly say that? Because Titus's preaching is to be accurate to the text. Titus, if you preach accurately, no one is able to disregard you because this is God's word. It's not your words. And so the, the scriptures are the touchstone for us of truth. And so we have all authority to speak this message insofar as it is the message of the Bible. And so we're constantly coming back to the Bible. We are Bible people. We are Bible preachers. We are a Bible church all, for all these reasons because that is our authority. You know, as you go out and, and as we go out into the world, and, and we do biblical ministry. We share the gospel with people. We say what the Bible says. And someone says, you can't say that. You can't do that. You know, we, we're just living out the implications of our faith. And they say, you can't do that. And you say, well, yeah, I can. And yes, I must. Because I have all authority to do this. Not because it's my authority, but because this is what the Bible says. I have to go with God. I have authority to do this. And we're going to sneak ahead and, and see this message that we are to preach with all authority in Matthew, or sorry, in Luke 24, here's the Great Commission from Luke. In Luke 24, verse 45, ah, we better look at 44. In Luke 24, 44, it says, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms might be fulfilled. That's the Old Testament. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, the Old Testament. And said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. 
And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Here it is again. He gives them the commission, the mandate to do this. He gives them the message there to proclaim. It's the message of the Old Testament that is further described in the New Testament for us, that Christ died, that he was buried, that he was raised, and and that repentance and uh, faith are to be preached in his name to all the nations. I mean, that's the gospel. That's the message. And then notice, he not only gives them the authority to do this, do this, but he gives them the power, the wait for the spirit to come upon you, to indwell you. That's Acts 2. And the church is born in Acts 2. And what is the church? What is it? It is a witnessing community. And that's what we do. We witness. We, we give testimony to what Christ has done in history and in our lives, and how that intersects. And we bring that message. That's what we are. The epistles then fill in how we are to do that, right? How are we to fill, fill our mission? Acts tells us what we are. We're a witnessing community. The epistles say, here's how you accomplish being a witnessing community. And so we are witnesses. We are to proclaim this good news of the kingdom. We may not have the gift of healing. We don't. Uh, but we do have the same ministry of reconciliation that the apostles had. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Listen, you and I are representatives of Christ. What we say about the gospel needs to be biblical. And our tone and our, and our demeanor and our lifestyle needs to match up with that message as well. This has massive implications for how we think about ministry and our own lives. This is the message of biblical ministry, the saving message. So are you proclaiming the good news about Jesus to others? This is one of the main reasons we are here, right? This is, you know, when you think about purpose and you think about what you're supposed to be doing and or interests, you know, you get, you get interested in something, you get good at it because you, you're interested. Well, like this is the purpose why the church is here. We are to witness to people about who Christ is and what he's done. So we need to be good at that. We need to be clear about that. And so this is the message we must be clear about. It is the saving message that remains the same. It was the same in the Old Testament. It was the same that the apostles were to speak and it's the same that we speak. And so this is the saving message of biblical ministry. Notice third, the simple methods of biblical ministry. The simple methods of biblical ministry. Verses three to six. Look at verse three. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. They have to travel light. And this is a unique situation. This is not how they will have to function all the time. This is for this particular trip. Even these same disciples later, if you go to Luke chapter 22, it changes. It changes. In Luke 22, verse 35, it says, And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack lack anything? And they said, Nothing. What is he talking about? He's talking about this chapter. He's talking about what we're studying. Hey, when, I, when I sent you out to take nothing, did you lack anything? No. The, it, it worked. That was what he was trying to teach them. I'll provide for you. Verse 36, he said to them, but now, so it's different now, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. 
For I tell you that this, this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. And so it, it changes here. Why the difference here and later? Well, Jesus is giving them instructions early on to teach them practical lessons. It's like weight training, right? It's like you train for something, and let's uh, say so you just, I don't know, I'm not a... Uh, I was going to make something up. You, know, you, 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 you wear a, like a heavy, uh, heavy backpack and, and you go on a hike, right? And you're just trying to work up uh, conditioning, right? To work up your, uh, to, to be stronger for that. And you're not going to wear that in the race. You're going to take that off. But, but wearing it for training helps you to, to be stronger for the race. And it's like Jesus is, is putting them through the paces. He's saying, you guys can't take anything. Not this time. You guys got to go out. You got to just trust me completely. And so they do. But later, okay, we've been through that. Now, do you think Jesus means later? You don't need to trust me anymore. Just trust your stuff. Just trust your packing, trust your training, trust your progeny, trust your preparation. No, that's not what he means at all. Nor does that mean that for us, right? We fit into that latter part. Uh, that has more application for us than, than what this does in the immediate situation. But we wouldn't say, man, I'm so prepared. I just... I had a great education, and, you know, I, I just, I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. Just leave me alone, you know? No, not at all. We, we want to be prepared. We want to be ready, but we have to depend on the Lord. We, it's not an either or, it's both and. But he's teaching them here. He's preparing them for the future. And, and so I think, though this is unique instruction, we draw out some of the timeless truths that he's trying to teach them that he wants to be abiding in their lives, even when the methodology changes a little bit for later. So I think there's three major things that we can draw from this. The first is in verse three, and that's dependence in ministry. The simple methods of ministry are dependence. They, they are to have a capsule wardrobe, as we might say, <laughs> they, or no wardrobe. No extra stuff is the idea. So they can have sandals and they can have a staff, but that's it. No, don't bring an extra pair. You're not going to be doing like jogging. You don't bring, need to bring your running shoes, you know. Uh, we're going to be on ministry all the time. And, and there's possibly an allusion here to Exodus 12, 11, when they, the children of Israel were to prepare for the Passover and they were to be like, sandals on, all ready to go, staff, and they're to eat their food quickly, right? Because they're about to be let out and God is going to, they have to depend upon God completely to protect them and provide for them. And it seems like Luke is actually going to make a lot of allusions to Exodus as a really cool one coming up. Just a little teaser. Okay, come back in weeks to come. We're going to get there. But there seems to be some similarities there. But the issue is dependence. It's dependence. They have to trust the Lord to provide for their needs. They're to allow those who receive the message to welcome them in and provide for them. Now, that's a little incentive to be like out there sharing the gospel. Jesus goes like, all right, if you want us somewhere to sleep tonight and you want to have food tonight, then you got to go share the gospel in this community that you don't know anybody. And it's like, all right, I bet you we're all sharing the gospel. You know, it's like, hey, do you know the Lord? You're like, okay, didn't work over there. Yeah, we need to find a place to stay tonight. You know, like, and, they, and then someone believes and they're like, come stay with our house. I want to, I want to, come stay at our house. I want to learn more about this. And you, you can eat. Okay, great. And so that's what they're to do. They are to depend upon the Lord. That's what, what does it look like for us to have a dependent ministry? Well, I mean, the most obvious, I think, is just to be praying constantly. We pray before ministry. We pray during ministry. We pray after ministry. 
You know, there's a lot of times when I'm, someone asks me a question, and they say this, like, Robert, I've got a question. And I immediately start going, Lord, help me. Help me know what to say. Lord, bring the passages to mind. Uh, help me to be humble if I don't know the answer. And I just start praying these different things in my head. And you don't know that, but that's what's happening as they stare at you and smile. You know, and, and, then, and then you say the question, and I'm like, I'm praying like, you know, uh, and I'm trying to give an answer, but pray. And then afterward, I try and think, if I, if I do think of it, you know, Lord, may that be helpful. If, if that wasn't clear, you know, let them forget that, you know, or just, Lord, help them apply that, or may that be a help to them. May they share with someone. Just praying before, during, and after ministry. I'm praying right now, you know. Lord, use your word in the life of your people. So we're just constantly praying. We are depending upon the Lord. We have to prepare. We have to do the work. But we know it's not us that brings about real lasting growth and change. It's the Lord who does that. But he uses us, weak instruments as we are. And so dependence in ministry is very important. Second, contentment in ministry. In verse four, look there. And whatever house you enter, stay there. And from there, depart. So there's no hotels at this point. Your options were to sleep outside, some camping, uh, stay in someone's home that invited you in, or stay in like what was probably more like a brothel. Uh, It's not a great place to stay. And what Jesus is saying is, hey, if someone welcomes you into their house because they're receptive to the gospel, you just stay there your whole time until you guys leave the city. And what is he trying to get at? I think what he's saying is, you guys can be content. You know, if, if, you, if you show the gospel and, you know, the poorest person in town invites you over to their, their little place and, you know, the food's not the greatest, and, but you're there, and then the next week you're there in the same town as your base of operations, like the richest person in town gets, you know, interested, and they're like, hey, why don't you come stay at our place? And he's like, you're not allowed to do that. You can't shop around. Or the other thing is, you can't just go from house to house seeking to just get money for yourself and raise money. And it's like, you go to this house, and you're like, thank you. And then you go to this house, get more money and money. And you're just trying to raise your money. That's why he says, don't even bring a money bag. Like, you're not to collect. I mean, just imagine the press upon Jesus that we've seen, but now to the 12, as they go out two by two, they're healing people. And people are like, no, no, come to my house, come to my house. And we're gonna invite relatives over, you know, uh, guys, Thanksgiving's gonna be early because everyone's gonna get healed. You know, it's like, and, and they're inviting everyone. And of course, this would lead to the easy opportunity to pilfer and take from people, which is what faith healers today do, so-called faith healers. You know, they just, they, they fill up their coffers, you know, through their so-called ministry. But here, the disciples, they're doing that kind of thing for reals, and they're not to collect. They're to be content. They're to be content. That's what they're to do. And, and the final message we see that, that we can learn from this is discernment in ministry. Discernment in ministry. Or if you're John MacArthur, discernment. Discernment. <laughs> Verse 5. And, whatever they, and wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And so Jesus is so wise here. This is a great lesson for discipleship. He's like preparing them for failure. He's for, in their minds, failure. Because actually it's success because the message is still going out. But he's preparing them for when people don't receive. Okay, some people receive you. They'll welcome you into their house. Into their house. Some people will reject you. So what, what do you do? How are you to be discerning about responding to them. And he says, shake the dust from your feet. And you're thinking, what? What is that? You know, the dust? I don't think I have any dust on my feet. And of course, it's a very dusty area and you have sandals. And, uh, and so this is a practice, a Jewish practice. If they were to travel into a Gentile town or region, when they came back to the border of Israel, as they entered in, 
a pious Jew might shake the dust off, you know, of their feet to say, I don't want any of this Gentile dirt following me home to show they're not part of the people of God and there's a separateness there. May the influence of that area, you know, come off, in other words. And it's kind of a rejection idea. And so this practice would be a very clear demonstration. And here, Lucas does not uh, emphasize it as much, but the other gospel writers do, that the disciples are only to go to Israelite areas for this short-term mission trip. They're not going to Gentile lands. So if he's saying to Jews who know about this practice, if people don't receive you, you do this Jewish kind of ritual, if you will, this Jewish practice to Jewish towns, like what does that communicate to them? They go to a Jewish town and they reject them. And so they, as they walk out of the town, and the people look at that and they go, what are you trying to say to us? And the message is clear. Y'all are no better than Gentiles. You're not even the people of God because you don't re- accept this message anymore. Now, uh, this was a sober warning to them. And this is what Paul would do later. As, Je- as Jewish areas rejected the message, he would uh, shake the dust off of his feet. It was a way to say, this is a sober warning to you. If you reject us, you're not just rejecting us. You're rejecting God. You're rejecting this message. And there's no hope for you outside of Christ. And so there was discernment needed here. Notice as well that the rejection was not just of the disciples, but it ultimately rejection about Jesus and his message. It was not about them. It was about the Lord. They were to do God's work in God's way. He was concerned not only about the message, but the methods that they used. And so, the call for discernment there as they did ministry. This is the, these are the simple methods of biblical ministry. Now, notice this, this leads to a response. How do the people respond to this? Well, here we see, fourth, the sad misconceptions of biblical ministry. The sad misconceptions of biblical ministry in verses seven to nine. You look at verse seven. Now, Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead. So the front page paper drops on Herod's desk and the headline news front page is about the apostles' ministry and the healing and the preaching and the the messages that are happening. His social media feed, every story. It's like someone posting about the miracle that they, you know, another one, another one. It's like, this is like, uh, this is viral. It's trending. (laughs) This is what's happening. Now, which Herod are we talking about here? This is very complicated. I don't know if you know about the Herods. Like, Herod the Great had like 10 children or something. And, and he just, he was like George Foreman. He named them all Herod or George. You know, it's like, and, uh, and just really confusing. And so it's sometimes hard to, the family tree is just like, if you took a bunch of spaghetti and you just threw it on the ground, like that's their family tree right there. It's all like intermingled and ugh, weird. But this is Herod Antipas. When Herod the Great's kingdom broke up, it broke the region into four sec- sections, and each uh, there was a different person that got a, uh, each uh, a different section. And Herod Antipas gets the section of Galilee, okay? And so he's ruling over this area. He is the one who puts John the Baptist to death. John the Baptist is preaching about his immorality and his his false marriage, and. Uh, her, you have the whole story that, that Luke tells elsewhere about how uh, his, his head is requested on a platter and Herod uh, gives it to them. And so he has killed John the Baptist and there's these 
things going around. He's hearing about what's happening, and he's perplexed. And some people are saying that John, John the Baptist, has been raised from the dead. Here's a paranoid guy, right? And he's, he's killed John the Baptist, this preacher. And he's, he's like, this guy's doing all these miracles. It's a similar message. It sounds, like, it sounds like the same thing. And he's going, is he raised from the dead? I mean, this is what a guilty conscience will do to a person. It will make them so paranoid about stuff in life because their conscience is just afflicting them, afflicting them. Unconfessed sin in people makes people paranoid. It makes people do weird stuff. You might be able to silence the preacher like Herod did, but you can't silence your conscience. Listen to J.C. Ryle. Conscience can bring up each sin before the eyes of their minds and make it bite like a serpent. Conscience called old sins from their graves and made them walk up and down in their hearts. Happy are they who have found the only cure for a bad conscience. Nothing will ever heal it but the blood of Christ. Mm, so good. So true, though. And Herod, no doubt, has a guilty conscience. And, and he's hearing, notice, notice how this is phrased. Herod, the Tetrarch, heard, verse 7, about all that was happening. Then look at verse 9. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? Notice what's happening here. He's hearing what the 12 did in their mission, but he's asking about who Jesus is. That's very instructive for us. When we do ministry, when we go out, this is success, right? If we go out and we serve the Lord and people go, hey, what about them? You know, they start talking about us all the time. Fail. <laughs> if we go out and serve Christ and talk about Christ and they're all upset about the gospel and about Christ and they're just like, oh, you know, this message and stuff. Success. Because we've got them thinking about Christ. We've got them thinking about the Bible. We've got them thinking about what the scriptures say, not about us, and that's exactly what happened. As the disciples worked and did their ministry, it was all about Christ, so that when Herod is hearing about these things and the people are hearing about them, their main question is, who is this guy that they're talking about, that they're doing these miracles in his name? And there's all these suggestions. We're not gonna get into them because we'll get into them when Peter talks about them, but there's confusion. There's all these misconceptions about who Jesus is. Put that aside for a second and just recognize that they're talking about Jesus. They're thinking Jesus has become famous and that's our job is to make Christ famous. No doubt, ministry will always lead to misconceptions. People will have these different views about Christ. They'll, they'll get confused. They'll, they'll come up with weird views about Christ. Part of our job is to clarify those things, but as Christ, uh, the message of Christ goes out, there will no doubt be sad misconceptions, and yet there will be clarity among those who believe, and that's what we'll see with Peter in the next passage. And so the goal is to be God's messengers, to make Christ famous, come what may. These are the sad misconceptions of biblical ministry. And finally, let's look at this glorious section on the feeding of the 5,000 and see the sufficient master of biblical ministry. The sufficient master of biblical ministry. Verse 10. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. Notice how Luke connects these things. He doesn't want you to see them disconnected. He wants you to see, oh, okay, they went out on the mission. Now they've returned, and this is the context in which this is happening. And so the disciples are no doubt worn out, 
And so Jesus, he knows their needs, and so he's going to take them on a little respite. They're back from their trip. He's going to have a debriefing time. He's going to have a time for rest for them. And so they get on a boat on the Sea of Galilee, and they, they go across to this area of Bethsaida, which some of the disciples are actually from there. But meanwhile, on the ground, people are running and following and trying to get there and cut them off and meet them there. And so they're supposed to have this time of rest, but all these people start showing up. And the disciples are like, oh. <laughs> no doubt, they're just so wiped out. And what does Jesus do? He just starts serving. And what is he doing? The exact same things the apostles were just doing. He's healing people. He's proclaiming uh, the gospel to people. He's doing the exact same ministry that he gave them to do. And they're watching the master at work. And, and so he begins to meet their needs. You see the Lord's compassion yet again, meeting needs. But this all comes to a head as the disciples want to send the people away after Jesus welcomes them and does all this ministry among them. It's getting late in the day and you're thinking, whoa, there's so many people here. He tells us there's 5,000 men. It's a very distinctive word for men. It's, sometimes there's a word that's like, it can refer to men and women in one word. This is a word that's specifically to men and that indicates to us that it's not just 5,000 people that are there. There's 5,000 men. So if you're just to guesstimate out, there could be upwards of 15 to 20,000 people present for this miracle. And the disciples are going, we gotta send these people home. They gotta find somewhere to lodge. We gotta, they gotta find food to eat tonight. And so what does Jesus say? Look at verse 12. Now the day began to wear away and the 12 came and said to him, send the crowd away Go to, the, to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. <laughs> what? You give them something to eat. And this is like a strong command. You do it. Do it. Feed these people. And here's the response. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we were to go buy food for all these people. Now, what are they doing? They're thinking, how do we pull this off? I mean, one guy's like calculating the money. We don't have that kind of money. You know, the, the other one's going, well, I found some fish and some biscuits from this kid, you know, uh, this chunky kid who got a lot of food from his mom. And it's like, and uh, she, she really loaded him up. That's not that much food, <laughs> but... But, but he, he bring, Andrew brings that. Andrew loves to bring stuff to the Lord. And they're going, what do we do here? Lord, are you, are you kidding? Now, what, how should they have responded? Now, I know, we, we look in hindsight and we go, I think I would have responded this way. I would have been like, what? But there, all that has led up to this, there would have been a legitimate response of saying, okay, Lord, Provide for us what we need to do this. We'll do it, but you provide. Now, why would I say that? Because chapter eight, they've just seen the Lord demonstrate his authority time and time and time and time again. And then he delegates his authority and they're doing miracles. They're going, this is crazy. I just healed that guy. I just cast out that demon and what is happening? You know, I don't have the power to do this. God is giving me the power to do this. And they're preaching and then they watch Jesus do it again in front of them. And now Jesus is saying, all right, guys, here's an impossible task for you, just like everything else you've been doing. Go feed them. Don't you think they could have said, okay, Lord, we get it. Give us what we need. Not only that, there's Old Testament precedent. Listen to this story. 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 42. This is Elisha and his ministry. A man came from Baal Shalisha, 
bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, give them to the men that they may eat. And thus says Yahweh, they shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them and they ate and had some left according to the word of Yahweh. Doesn't that sound exactly like our story? This, this is like a precursor to the feeding of the 5,000. It's a much smaller group, but they should know about this story. So there's a number of factors that, that would go, it's like a final exam comes and you had all these things leading up to it. And this is like something that like, hey, this is going to be on the quiz, guys. The Elisha story. And here's their final exam and they fail it. He's testing them. He wants them to learn this lesson. And of course, it takes all of us a long time to pick up on things and learn the lesson. And that's part of discipleship. And so what does Jesus do? He still includes them in the ministry. Look at what we read in verse 14. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, make them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and made them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Now, if you're there and you're, you don't know what he's about to do, you're thinking like, they just, gave, they just took this kid's lunch and they give it to Jesus and he's like praying like he's about to eat it. <laughs> you're, thinking, you're thinking, what is he gonna do? Is he gonna eat this food in front of us? No one has food. And he's just took this kid's lunch and he's gonna eat it himself. I mean, there's all kinds of things you could be thinking. But he prays and he, and he gives thanks for it. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And so the disciples, he hands it to them and they're full. And so they go out and they pass out and they come back and the next one goes and they get full and they keep going and going and going and going after getting them into the groups of 50. So people are like, why are we sitting in groups of 50? What's, what's going on? Uh, we don't know. <laughs> and then they start doing it. And notice what Jesus does. He provides them what they could never provide, but he lets them pass it out. Like what a parable for ministry. We got nothing to give people and of ourselves, but Jesus gives us everything we need for ministry, for biblical ministry. And he says, you just pass it out. You just give it to the people. I'm gonna let you participate in this incredible miracle. Like I, I've said before, you know, if you got a great story, you wanna be the one to tell it. You're like, oh, kids fight to tell the story. And this is like, if you, if you could participate in this miracle, what a privilege that would be. And he lets them do it. Even though they, they didn't quite get what he was trying to teach them, he still lets them do exactly what they just did on their short-term trip. And they get to participate in the ministry of Jesus. And he feeds all the people. And then just to seal the deal for them, verse 17, they all ate and were satisfied. They weren't just like, oh man, I wish there was more. They're just like stuffed. This is an amazing feast. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. It's like the Lord's way of saying, oh yeah, you guys, you can have the the leftovers. Do you, do you want a box for that? <laughs> and, and here's 12 boxes, you know, to take home for the disciples. Amazing demonstration of the Lord's creative power to multiply bread in this way, but all to teach them all ministry is dependent ministry upon the Lord. Now the 12 may not have got this here, but they definitely got it after Acts 2. See Acts 3, they're doing all these incredible miracles and they're saying, it's not us. It's in the name of Jesus that we do this to you and we do this for you. And it's always, there's no other name by which men must be saved. For there's no other name given among men by which they must be saved except Jesus Christ. 
And they're doing all these things, incredible miracles that the Lord is providing and empowering them for, but it's not in them. They're just the messengers. They're just giving it out. And so it is for us. We just give it out. We're constantly dependent upon the Lord and we're just giving out what he's given to us. God provides us all that we need to do his will, to do biblical ministry. We see the mandate of biblical ministry, the message of biblical ministry. We see the simple methods of biblical ministry. We see the sad misconceptions of biblical ministry. And then we see the sufficient master of biblical ministry. Hudson Taylor, the pioneer missionary to China, inland China, famously said this, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supplies. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. It is sufficient. It is all that we need for life, for godliness, for life pleasing to you. We thank you for the excitement to participate in the work of gospel ministry. Lord, we know that you've given us different roles to play in that. We know that all of us should be humbled to be used at all by you. Lord, to be a part of seeing a life change, to see someone who was destined for hell come to know you, to be forgiven of their sins, and to be transferred to the kingdom of your beloved son, and that we get to play a part of that in articulating those truths, these precious truths preserved and seen powerful in our lives and then passed on. Oh Lord, what a gift that is. There's nothing better in this life to see lives change through your work as we depend upon you for biblical ministry. Lord, help us to stay focused, to, to not be distracted by other things, but to, to have a ministry that's content, that's dependent, and that's discerning, and that looks to you as the sufficient master of it all who provides everything we need for both life and godliness. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.